All right, I'm just going to say that my, uh, this is, uh, I got off a plane and I got home at 3 a.m. So I am um, fumes, but also our topic today is end times, right? Eschatology. I was in Hawaii. So it's really weird to be sitting on a beach in Hawaii thinking about how, anyway, I'm just, I think what I'm really asking for is a lot of grace, if that's okay. All right, my name is Catherine. I am one of the people on the teaching team. There are notes in the liminal app today. You don't have to, I mean, you don't need them during the service. Uh, it's going to be the same stuff that's on the screen, but I have a little bit of technical information uh, partway through here, and you may want to revisit it because we'll be kind of swooping through it. I'm picking up where Ginny left off last week, uh, and we are in chapter 13 of Mark's Gospel. And uh, Ginny did the first uh, few verses, and I really appreciate the pastoral perspective that she gave to some kind of uh, scary stuff. As a reminder, um, these verses take place during the last week of Jesus' life, Holy Week. So months ago in Mark's Gospel, Wayne did Palm Sunday, and then Brian talked about the um, destruction of the temple. Actually, I think I did Palm Sunday. Oh, well. And then um, Brian talked about the destruction of the temple, and Wayne talked about some teaching that Jesus had done. So basically, we're doing a slow walk through Holy Week. Uh, we've done Sunday and Monday of Holy Week. If we were to really try to calendar what Jesus is doing, we think that the message that Jenny started last week and that I'm going to finish today happened on Tuesday of Holy Week. And... Uh, so Jesus has been teaching in the city. He's overthrown the, temp, uh, the tables in the temple. He's been questioned by the chief priests, uh, the teachers of the law, and the elders. And basically, they've been asking him, as they always do, who the heck do you think you are? And they're looking for ammunition. They're looking for a reason to have him put to death. And he's uh, in Tuesday morning. He's at the temple with his disciples. He's been doing some teaching. And as they walk out of the temple, one of his disciples is, is kind of like a tourist. Man, Jesus, look at this place. Isn't this amazing? And Jesus bursts his bubble by saying, one day this is all going to be destroyed. This will all be gone. And then as Ginny Gate walked us through, in the afternoon, Tuesday afternoon, Jesus is sitting across from the temple and, and Mark wants us when they give you geographical details, they're trying to tell you something. He's sitting across from the temple, like in opposition to the temple. And when he left the temple, Mark used words that made it seem like this is a break with the temple that Jesus is making. And now Jesus is sitting on the Mount of Olives, and we know from the way all the Bible books talk to each other that when they call out a mountain and Jesus is sitting on the mountain, the mountain is a place where God meets people. Jesus is sitting on the mountain facing the temple, uh, and he's with Peter, James, John, and Andrew, and who ask, understandably, when is this going to happen, this destruction you talked about this morning? What will be the sign? So I want to show us how these the verses from last week and the verses from today all work together. So we have a giant passage of scripture that I'm going to read through, including some of uh, Ginny's verses last week. You're going to notice on the slides that um, there's a color change between some sections, 
and that some uh, phrases or words are underlined. And I'm going to talk about why I did that in a bit. So here's the, uh, the passage in its entirety. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, and John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of war, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious in that do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. So that was Ginny's, I think, last week. It's going to get worse. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as, as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now, and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard, I have told you all things beforehand. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory, and then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the ocean. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. 
Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey. When he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening, or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Oh, man. (laughs) Of all the things that Jesus said... This is not the stuff I want to gravitate to or learn more about. And frankly, Jesus' answer to his disciples just raises more questions for me. And like Ginny, I have baggage about this, these passages. Same as Ginny, this was a big deal in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s. And Christian publishers fed it even more by churning out books and novels about the end times, the tribulation, the rapture, because this is the cynic in me. Turns out you can make a lot of money about stoking fear. (laughs) In my church, people were seeing devils sitting on other people's uh, shoulders, demons everywhere. Everyone was looking to name the Antichrist. I just want you to know that I had a lawnmower. I told Tom I would cut the grass, which he just knew that would never happen. But anyway, I named my lawnmower the Antichrist because it made me cuss and swear just trying to get it started every time. And one time there was a guy walking down the street and I was in the front yard trying to get the lawnmower started. And I was from, I looked like a crazy woman and I looked that way a lot, but I looked even more crazy. This man's walking towards me. He's about 50 feet away. And then I'm standing at my yard. You, you, I'll pay you 20 bucks if you can start my lawnmower. He's just like, "Mm." (laughs) All right. I also had an older woman at our church who was, oh, uh, amazing. Just one of those super wonderful people. She used to invite me and my three little kids over to her house to swim in her pool. And she had a giant Newfoundland dog. She knew we liked dogs. And, uh, Whenever my kids would jump in the pool, you know what a Newfoundland does? Newfoundland does. They save, they're a water dog. They save people's lives. Every time my kids would jump in the pool, the dog would jump in and push them to the side and stuff. It was very fun. But one time afterwards, she said, oh, it's great how you and your kids, everybody get along with the dog. She goes, when the rapture comes, I want you to come and take care of my dog. I said, Okay. (laughs) So now you know from a long time I've been totally unqualified to be up here. All right. So the disciples, this is back on Mount Olives. The disciples, the insider group of the disciples, these four, they're asking for insider knowledge, for help in understanding that enigmatic thing that Jesus said when he told the other disciple... All this is going to be gone. This is going to be totally gone. And as foreign and strange as Jesus' answer to them sounds to us, it did not sound that strange to the disciples. 
because Jesus is using words and phrases and a style of speaking which with they were very familiar. The words and the phrases and the, the imagery he's using come from the Hebrew text, primarily the prophetic texts. So from Jeremiah, from Zechariah, from Joel, from Isaiah, from Ezekiel, from Daniel, and from Amos. And the literary style that Mark has put Jesus' words into uh, is called a final discourse, which is a well-known style in the ancient world. And in fact, in the uh, Hebrew Bible, there are several final discourses, uh, like one from Jacob, one from Moses, one from Joshua, one from Samuel. So Mark has taken teachings of Jesus and put them in this shape as Mark's, or as Jesus' final speech to his disciples. John, in his gospel, has a lovely final discourse. Five full chapters of love and comfort for the disciples. But Mark has a different one, and so that's what we're going to be looking at today. So our fancy words for today are, yes, eschatology. It's a study of the end times. It doesn't repl- uh, it's not just limited to Christian end times. It's just any time someone's studying end times. <laughs> Sorry. This is where I'm starting to blather. I can just feel it now. I'm like... <laughs> Tribulation. Okay, this word always just makes me kind of clench. Um, we give it a capital T. We make it a proper noun in Christian circles. Uh, it's as if we're talking a specific time, like the industrial age or the age of enlightenment or something. But in, in Scripture, it's a lowercase t. It's a word commonly used throughout Scripture, and it means distress or suffering. It doesn't mean a specific time. So I just want to get that out there. And parousia is a lovely Greek word, which means the second coming or the second advent of Jesus. The first one was his birth in Bethlehem. All right, so these verses that we just read, and I'm sorry it was such a big chunk, these verses that we just read are about future events. Some of them are in the near future, like the destruction of Jerusalem, the fall of the temple. Some of them are in the more distant future, which has not happened, clearly. The reason that I put those... um, Verses in different colors is so to illustrate which are which. So I'm pretty sure. Was the first one that started out green? If it was, that's the near future verses. The black ones are in the distant future. So two different time periods are happening. Jesus is talking about something's going to happen relatively soon. Something's going to happen sometime. And there were some key words that Jesus used Uh, so that the disciples could tell the difference between the near future events and the distant future events. So uh, I underlined those words. The near future events have words like when you hear, these days, these things, this. The distant future events are when you see, those days, those things, that. So we have this and we have that. And when you look at that, when you read and you follow those words, you see that uh, Mark uh, is telling us um, 
through vocabulary, there's a vo chronology of events. And then uh, just to, this is the last technical thing, and I think I'm, it's actually going to be the last slide you're going to see. So the near verse, near future, oh gosh. You're good. Thank you. <laughs> the near time events are verses 1 through 13, which Ginny talked about last week. Then the distant events, and I was going to change this, but I, to that, a lowercase, are the, the time of distress and the second coming of Jesus. Then he goes back and he talks about the near time, which is the end of the temple, the fall of Jerusalem, and that's when he's using, he's talking about the fig, fig tree. And then he goes back to the distant, the second coming of Jesus. And so organizationally, it's this. A1 is near, verses 1 to 13. Okay, so you can figure that out. B1, A1, B1. Now, those of you who were here with us uh, maybe almost two years ago, and we did the Ephesians study, that A1, B1, A1, B1 form of uh, organizing text was used by Paul in Ephesians many times to compare things. What was he comparing? God's unfolding plan for the Jews and the Gentiles. God's unfolding plan for the Jews and the Gentiles. He used the, Paul used the exact same method of organization. Now, <clears throat> remember that in the ancient world, texts, uh, letters, the scripture, was read aloud. And so the people who listen are very keyed in to audible word clues. We need all this help, like change the font, underline the words. But they didn't need that. They were used to hearing these word clues. And it would be kind of like, this is a, not the best analogy, you're watching a movie in the movie theater, right? And what's helping you understand what you're seeing? The soundtrack, right? We know when we hear dun 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 something bad is going to happen, right? And we know when they're falling in love because it's all sparkly and, you know. So we, we, this is kind of what's going on here is that Mark has given word clues to tell the audience, the listeners, what's happening. And for those of us, is that still up there? Oh, good. And for those of us uh, who've been listening to Mark for the last year, this is a double-decker Mark and Sandwich. <laughs> so, although these verses seem cryptic and tricky to us, they were much more accessible to the original listeners, the original hearers. So now I'm going to start off with verse 14. You don't have to remember any of this because... I mean, we're not, there's no more slides, right? Good. <laughs> Verse 14 starts off with this very controversial phrase. The abomination of desolation standing where it does not belong. And in these verses, it appears to uh, refer to a specific event that jumpstarts this time of uh, incredible suffering. Before I go on, and I'm going to say this again at the end, nobody agrees what these verses mean. Really, really smart people, really, really smart people have very different ideas of the timing, what could they could refer to. So what I'm telling you today is one person's opinion, and luckily it's not mine, it's the, um, the guy who wrote our commentary, James Edwards. 
He's been pretty reliable in the way he matches up with other things, but I just wanted to mention that my NIV Bible, which I love, a copyright 1985, does not agree at all with what the commentator says. <laughs> so, anyway. So this abomination of desolation is something, according to Edwards, our commentator, <clears throat> that occurs after the destruction of the temple and after the fall of Jerusalem, but also before the second coming, this return of Jesus. So something defiling and profane is going to happen. Now, for Mark's Jewish listeners of the time, when they heard that phrase, the abomination of desolation standing where it does not belong, they would actually have an idea in their mind of what it could be like because much, much earlier in their history, well, they have a long history, so not that much earlier, around 168 uh, BCE, uh, a Syrian general who was overseeing the area of uh, Judea put an altar to Zeus on top of the sacred altar of the burnt offering in the temple, and he sacrificed a pig in the temple. So you can see how horrific that would have been, that event in the past. And so when the uh, Jewish listeners heard that phrase, they're thinking along those lines. But we don't really know because Jesus sometimes refers, or this is where I really would like my brain to be engaged, but it's not. Jesus refers once or twice to a man of lawlessness. The New Testament refers to an antichrist. So nobody knows what the abomination of desolation is. But whatever it is that's going to happen in this text from Mark, it portends an absolute disaster, a time of distress and suffering, a disaster that happens so quickly that if you are on the flat roof of your Palestine home, don't take the time to run inside the inside stairs to get something just take the outside stairs and hit the road and run. If you're out working in the fields, don't go back and find where you laid your cloak. Just run. And if you are encumbered by your pregnant, ba uh, your pregnant belly or holding your nursing baby, or if this event happens in winter when the wadis are filled with water and impossible to cross, you probably won't make it. These are horrific images. And then there's this tiny little line of hope where Jesus says it won't be as horrific as it could be because God will shorten the days of it. And then to add to everybody's confusion, apparently during this time there will be false messiahs. There will be people or things uh, that will want to try to lead us away, lead believers away from Jesus. And then it gets worse than that. This verse was up there. But in those days, after that suffering, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will be falling from the heavens and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. It's like creation becoming undone. The unmaking, the undoing of let there be light. Chaos and darkness envelop the earth. The cosmos seems to disappear. And here's some of those more questions. Is that the end times? Who is orchestrating this? Is this the power of the Antichrist? Is this God's judgment? 
what is going on? And then again, another line of hope. But right after this, the Son of Man coming in clouds with his angels, the second coming of Jesus. Okay, then Jesus switches gears and he starts talking about the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. And he uses the image of the fig tree. You remember back in chapter 11, I know you remember this vividly, you remember back in chapter 11 when Jesus cursed the fig tree. The fig tree in Mark represents the temple system. And Jesus is saying, learn this from the fig tree. Note, uh, when the fig tree gets tender and the leaves start to come out, you know that summer is near, meaning the fig tree can't tell you exactly when summer arrives, but it tells you it is coming. It is near. And so he's telling you that the destruction of the, the fall of the temple, the destruction of Jerusalem is a sign that things are coming near. And then Jesus says something that I really love and kind of lets me off the hook. Only God knows when this will happen. Therefore, they need to be alert, watch, be on guard. And then finally, he ends, is talking about, uh, he ends with talking about the fact that no one knows when he will return. And he uses that analogy of a man leaving the house and putting the servants in charge. They have specific tasks to do, the different servants in the, in the house. And in addition to that, they have to watch and wait for his return. So what are we to do with this speech? Some scholars feel that Mark, see, it depends on when you think the book of Mark, the gospel of Mark was written. If it was written much later, like after 70, AD, 70 CE, then um, Mark could be putting into Jesus' mouth events that he already knows about, that Jerusalem did fall, that, by the way, another guy tried to put, profane the temple. The emperor Caligula wanted to put a, a statue of himself in the temple. So some people think that's what's happening. Uh, other people, like my NIV Bible, think the whole thing is just about the fall of <clears throat> Jerusalem. Sorry. <clears throat> In the first 200 years of the church, the early Christian writers, they could not figure this out. They didn't know what he was talking about. And of course, the part where Jesus says he doesn't even know when this will happen is sometimes a stumbling block for people. So why am I confusing things more for you all and not giving you the timetable that Ginny promised that I would do? <laughs> because maybe these verses are really for all people in all time. And this is where, sitting on the beach in Kauai, I started rethinking what I wrote, and I have scribbles here. So this is going to be a little bit, I have to read my own writing here. Because... As Ginny mentioned last week, this stuff is happening around us all, all the time, right? I mean, there are wars, there are earthquakes, there's disasters, there are people just being horrible to each other. There are famines, families falling apart, danger that people have to flee from. And we know from our own experience or from watching the news, the feelings that that brings up in us. Uh, we say things like, my world is falling apart, uh, I, things have come undone. We can't physically or emotionally sometimes get away fast enough from what's happening in the world. We say there's no light at the end of the tunnel. So we, while we might 
think that these words are about a specific time period or specific time frames. They could also be about what it means to be human in a world with other humans and natural disasters, in a world with people that we love and like and adore, in a world with people who are fallible and corrupt or powerful, or a world full of people of both. And Jesus is going to be, he's trying to tell his disciples what it's like to live in a messy world. By the way, that part was my opinion, not Edward's or anybody I read, so take it with a grain of salt. Again, after working on this chapter, uh, after living through when this was the big deal, uh, after being part of liminal and realizing that I don't have to have an answer for everything or know everything, uh, this is what my conclusion is and why I don't think we need a blueprint or a timetable. Most of us who call ourselves Christians have things that we believe in, that we trust, and that we're willing to assert. For example, for me, and I hope for most of you, it's that Jesus is the Son of God, the human and divine one. That he's God, embodied as a human, who lived and died on behalf of the whole world. That he was raised and will bring the kingdom of God. God's shalom for all someday. These are core things that we can have confidence in and feel a good deal of conviction about and agree on. But notice I didn't say that we all understand it, because who can understand what God has done for us? That's the center of our faith. And then there are other very important things around that center that different groups of Christians have different views on, that they don't agree on. Things like baptism, or how to organize a church, or who has authority to be here. What is communion? What is mission? Things that Christians respectfully, hopefully, differ on. Things that are very important and we feel sure of in our different arenas, but recognize that there are other valid ways of doing those things. And then there is another area, I guess we could call these concentric circles, core, inner, outer, of things farthest from the center. Things that are important. Things like the end times, what will happen, when is Jesus coming. These are important things. But we hold our understanding of them lightly and with true humility. Our degree of confidence that we understand, our conviction that we understand what these things are, is much less than the confidence and the conviction which we hold for our core beliefs. But that doesn't mean we can't learn something from this text. So here are some of my thoughts about this text, and I kind of, someday maybe we'll have figure out a way that we can hear your ideas about this text. This is what I think I hear Jesus saying to his disciples. That God is a God who acts in history, in our world, in our time. The divine one shows up. And when he does, 
sometimes it gets messy. Messy as the God who shows up isn't the God we expect. Israel's core story was that God acted on behalf of the Israelites in Egypt to bring them to freedom, redemption, to, bring them, to have them be part of his unfolding plan. And it was messy. It was messy with plagues and death and grumbling in the desert. And not everybody who started made it. Our core story is added on to it, that God came to us. He came as, a baby to a be- to, uh, came as a baby to Bethlehem, and it was messy, like birth is. And it was messy in that people didn't understand. And it was very messy when Herod, the fallible, corrupt, and powerful one, felt so threatened by the birth of this baby that he had children under the age of two killed. It was messy when the God who walked among us hung on a cross. And things might get bumpy when he comes again. God enters our history to turn our history his way, his redemptive way. We get freaked out by these apocalyptic-sounding verses, but Jesus wasn't trying to scare anyone. And I don't think the disciples then and his later followers were frightened. This language, this way of talking, was familiar to them. I think they might even have been comforted because Jesus interjects hope into these verses. And as the years went by and some of those things came to pass in their lifetime, such as betrayals, dragged before councils, the fall of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple, I think they might have actually felt some hope because the Jesus that they knew and loved had given them the heads up and told them how to act, to show up every day with faith and courage and compassion and stamina. Because when things are at their worst, the story is not over. The cosmic, ultimate purposes of God will prevail. If these verses are really about specific events in the future, then we are actually one step into them because the fall of Jerusalem occurred, the temples destroyed. And so we are like every follower since those days, waiting for the master's return to do what followers before us have, de- have always done, to keep telling the story of the God who is love, to keep acting in love and compassion and courage and stamina, to be here and with the ones who are going through the times of distress. Living faithfully means living in the not knowing, living in the time of the now and the not yet, living in the mystery of when and how and why God works the way he does, with one job, to stay awake and show up every day with faith and courage and compassion and stamina and keep telling the story of the God who is love. Uh, If the band would come up, that would be great because I was supposed to ask you to come up a little while ago. And let's pray. Lord, you've given us this wonderful book, this wonderful library. And we thank you for the words that it contains. 
even when we don't understand. But we trust, we believe, our hope is in you. And we ask that each day you would strengthen us to be the people who can act in this world the way you did, to walk in love, to care, to redeem, to speak truth to power, to love one another, and Lord, to always, always keep our eyes on you. Amen.